We've sung this morning about the, the mighty deeds and the excellent greatness of God in Christ Jesus, just as we devoted our time of prayer this morning to celebrating the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ our King, our Lord. Through His life, His death, His resurrection, our hope is solely in Him alone. The church is devoted, it clings to one thing, Jesus Christ alone and His redeeming work. We've sung about God's excellent greatness, His mercy in providing such a Savior to us. Who am I? And can it be that I, the one who has refused God, the one who has kept God at arm's length, the one who has failed to worship Him with every breath and to love Him with, every, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and can it be that I should gain a place in God's love? It's only through Jesus Christ. Praise be to God for who He is, His excellent greatness, His mercy, and for His awesome deeds through His Son, Jesus Christ. We turn now to examine the fruit of our God's magnificent work. Revelation chapter 21 this morning. Revelation chapter 21. I invite you, I encourage you to take out your Bible and open it and keep it open this morning for it is God's Word. As we look together at Revelation chapter 21, our, our focus this morning is verses 1 through 8. I'm not exactly sure how much ground I'm going to be able to cover in the time that we have together this morning, but as we turn to it, keep in mind, Revelation chapter 21 is now the high point of the entire book of Revelation. Not because what we find here is the most important thing. The most important thing in the book of Revelation is Christ. Christ enthroned. That's the central picture of the book of Revelation. What makes chapter 21 the high point of the book of Re Revelation is that all that Christ is, all that Christ does upon the throne, now it comes together and finds its ultimate fulfillment. Everything from eternity past and everything in time that Christ came to be and to do and continues to do now in the church age, in the time between His ascension and His return, all that Christ is doing in chapter 21, we fast forward to the very end, and here it finds its ultimate culmination. It all comes together, its ultimate fulfillment. And it's in that regard, Revelation 21 is the high point of the book of Revelation. So we'll read the text, verses 1 through 8, but before we do, let's turn our hearts to the Lord once more in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, it is good to be in your house today. It is good to be in the presence of our King. It is good to have the Spirit working in our hearts and our midst through your Word together this morning. And as we give attention to Revelation 21, the glories of heaven, as you reveal things to us in this text, Lord, we pray ultimately that you would show us the greater glory that gives all the other glory of this text its brilliance and beauty. Show us the ultimate light that makes everything else in heaven shine so brightly. 
show us the heart of heaven, that which makes heaven heaven, which is Christ Jesus. Show us Christ. May our hearts become entranced, not with heaven, but with Christ. And may we see him and savor him and treasure him and cling to him in all of life because he alone is the path to this eternity in heaven with him. Show us Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Revelation 21. We'll begin reading in verse 1. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And to the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. And I will be his God and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Well, we'll pause here this morning and see how far we can get into the text. It's important for us to see how, again, how this particular text fits into the, the, the section of Revelation that we're in. This is a transition text, particularly verses 1 through 8 that we just read. It's a transition text between the judgment of God that we read about in Revelation 19 and 20 and the reward of the saints that we're going to read in the rest of the book of Revelation. So what we have here is kind of a bridge between the judgment of God upon his enemies and the reward of the saints that's still to come. And if we think back to chapter 19 and 20, what did we see there? It's God's purging of creation. Before there can be this new heavens and new earth we just read about, there first must be a purging of all sin, of all evil, of, all, of, all, of worldliness. And so we saw in chapter 19, the beast and the false prophet being cast into the lake of fire. We see in chapter 20, the binding of Satan, which was accomplished in the work of Jesus on earth in his earthly ministry. But then ultimately being cast into the lake of fire in a purging of the world, a purging of creation. And then chapter 20 closes out with God's poured out judgment upon these evil influences, but there's still one aspect of sin and evil that resides in the world that if there is going to be a subsequent heaven and earth where every soul 
is devoted to King Jesus, then that one element must still be done away with. And it's man. And chapter 20 closes out with the purging of all who do not love Christ. And if you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, I've tried to pick my words carefully there. I didn't say the purging of all those who've, who, 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 who um, haven't, have, haven't made a, a profession of salvation. I didn't say a purging of all those who aren't church attenders. Because one of the things we've seen in the last couple of weeks is that in this great white throne judgment, it's not about how moral you are or how religious you are. Jesus himself gives evidence in this, in his public ministry and teaching that this purging is about those who don't love Jesus because a new heaven and new earth is all about Jesus. He's cleansing everything, cleansing the palate of anyone and everything that does not have this love for Jesus, that doesn't have the fruit of the new birth. What Jesus said to Nicodemus, that religious man of his day, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You must be born by spirit and water. You must be born by the Holy Spirit coming and taking out a heart. Though religious and though moral, but there is no love for Jesus there. You must be born from the Spirit who in the new birth gives us that heart to love Jesus. And the great white throne judgment is not God's judgment upon those who aren't religious. It's among those who don't love Jesus. And that's why Jesus says, even among the religious, wide is the gate that leads to death, narrow is the gate that leads to heaven. We talked about this last week. He's not talking about across the landscape of the world, most of the world will go through the wide gate. The context of that passage, he's talking to the religious. He's talking to the churchgoers. Among those who go to church, if you will, in his day. Wide is the gate that leads to hell. Why? Because there is a vast difference between religion and morality and the Christian faith which is a love for Jesus. Christ is all. Our, the church's one foundation is Jesus Christ the King. His person, His work, His life, His glory, His worship, because He is the radiance of the glory of God. His face is the beauty and majesty of Almighty God. And my heart treasures Him. So that's what chapters 19 and 20 were. This purging of creation for all who don't love Christ. And now chapter 21, the passage we just read, brings a closure to that. Now all that's left are true believers. Not professing believers, true believers. Those who've been born again by God. Those whose lives bear evidence that no, no, they're not perfect. But Christ is all. And they're being conformed to the likeness of Jesus. 
And in their speech, they're speaking like Jesus. And in their activity and their deeds, they're acting and living like Jesus. And now, by the grace of God in Christ Jesus, these, this remnant, it's Old Testament language, it's a picture of the remnant in the old, this remnant now prepares to receive what God has in store for them. This is what makes Revelation 21 the high point of the entire letter. This is everything that has been promised. If, in fact, Revelation 21 is everything that the Bible has been pointing to since the very beginning. If you go back to Adam and Eve, back to paradise, when sin entered the world, God laid out His eternal plan there in Genesis chapter 3, a plan from before the foundation of the world that ultimately through the seed of the woman, He would eliminate sin for all time. Now Adam and Eve brought it in, but He laid down a promise that He would eliminate it ultimately through the Messiah. And in doing so, through this one, He would recreate humanity through Jesus Christ. And that was the story of Genesis 3. And all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament and the epistles, everything up to Revelation 21 is the execution of God fulfilling that promise. The whole Bible has been pointing to this moment in Revelation 21 when God has poured out judgment on all who don't love that Messiah, who don't love Him with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength by grace. And now all that's left are the people of God ready to receive what God has eternally had in store for those he's loved with an everlasting love. All the Bible has been about this. You could go back to Revelation 2 and 3. All the promises that were made. Remember the churches, the seven churches? None of them were perfect. Even those to whom God didn't lay down a specific grievance he had with them. They were not a perfect church. They were very much in need of Christ. And to all of those churches, he, kept, he closed the letter. To those who overcome, to those who conquer, you have this, and it's a promise. Well, Revelation 21 is the promise. Revelation 21 is the, 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 the gift for all those who overcome and conquer and cling to Christ, even while the church itself may be drifting away from Christ. Revelation 21 is the fulfillment. Remember all the hymns we've seen? In the book of Revelation, the angels, the, uh, those around the throne, worshiping God, worshiping Christ. Revelation 21 is the fulfillment of all those hymns. The destruction we saw in Revelation 19 and 20 is the fulfillment, or is the, the background for the fulfillment of what we see in Revelation 21. All of these events in biblical history now merge together into now, now is that time when God ushers in the new heaven and the new earth. Paul writes in Romans 8, 18, he says this, the sufferings of this present life, and who knew the sufferings of this present life better than Paul? Now some of us in this room may uh, this morning be knowing the sufferings of this present life, but Paul writes, the sufferings of this present life, this present time, are not worth comparing this is a massive statement not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us what's he talking about there 
Revelation 21. And what comes after? All the trials and sufferings of this life, the hardships, the agonies, the frustrations, the angers. In light of what I see in Revelation 21 and 22 and the fulfillment of who Christ is and what He's done, this are not worth comparing with that. It's kind of like if you've ever bought a new home, and I'm sure you've done that before, and you've bought a home and you're counting down the days and weeks till you get the keys, and then you get to go put the key in the door and you walk in for that first moment. I mean, the anticipation of that day, right? You may be going through hardship in your life, in your job, in your family, but there's just something about, I'm just, you know, I'm a week away from getting the keys to the new house, and man, it's just, it's not going to change anything necessarily, but man, it's, it's just, it's going to be something good, and you just cling to that, right? Or, or perhaps maybe you've gone through a grievous time in your life. Maybe you've a lost loved one. And you're grieving the loss of someone and you've got an upcoming vacation. Maybe you're going to the beach. And going to the beach isn't going to bring this person back. Don't get me wrong. But is there not something in your mind that says, I, that, that, that trip just can't get here quick enough? Because I, I, it just gives me, it allows me to kind of get away. Or at least it's a new context. It's something I, I can t- take my eyes and then you get there, and it's like, thank you for this, right? That's what Paul is talking about here in Romans 8 when he says the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed. And so as we look at Revelation 21, it's only as we take this picture, this eternal perspective, that we can find the hope and the comfort in our present sufferings. question this morning is Revelation 21, is it anything more than a mere curiosity for you? My fear is that so much of the book of Revelation has been a mere curiosity. And I pray that's not, that's been my prayer each week as I'm preparing these messages that we come in together and there's not just a, well I wonder what he's going to say about this text. And then we leave and go home to lunch and we, (laughs) we argue about Well, he got that wrong, he got that wrong. It's a mere curiosity. Is Revelation 21 anything more than a mere curiosity? I wonder what heaven will be like. I wonder what Jake might say about the new heaven and the new earth. Or are you genuinely looking forward to heaven? Genuinely in the midst of the struggles of this life, like Paul talks about in Romans 8, clinging to the hope of heaven. And if you are, here's the more important question. Stay with me on this one. Why? If you're looking forward to heaven, this is really the most critical matter of it all. Why are you looking forward to heaven? The most obvious yet most unbiblical and unconverted the response of an unconverted soul is I just want out of this world I'm tired I'm exhausted I just want to get out of this I want to get to that I, I, I read about no more tears no more suffering I've cried a lot of tears I've suffered a lot here I just I'm ready for all this to be over and to that soul hell, heaven is nothing more than escape I just want an escape plan let me ask you Who's the center of your escape plan? What's driving that desire for escape? It's you. 
I want this. I want relief. I want no more tears. I want no more suffering. And if that is our great interest in heaven, in the new heaven and the new earth, is that finally, finally I can get past all of this hardship and I can finally have that peace and comfort and joy, I would submit to you, please pause and think about what, what's driving you there. Why do you look forward to heaven? Why are you looking forward to the return of Christ? Is it because of something about you? Or is it something bigger? True biblical Christians, we see it in the Apostle Paul, we see it in Peter, we see it all throughout the Bible. True believers look forward to heaven for one reason, and one reason only. Now there are subsequent joys that accompany this one reason that they do bring up, but don't confuse those subsequent joys with what really drives them when they think about heaven. Heaven, when they want it, when they drive for it, it's one thing, it's Christ. It has everything to do, I want to be where Christ is. Paul writes it in, in um, Philippians 1, for me to live as Christ and to die is gain. What's gain? Is it escapism? Is it finally I can get away from all the suffering, all the lashes, all the shipwrecks, all these things? The thorn in the flesh, my goodness, heaven will be gained because the thorn in the flesh is gone. Well, there's truth to that. But Paul already laid claim to what his great interest in heaven was when he said, for me to live is Christ. Christ is all. And so death becomes gain because I get nearer my Christ. A greater intimacy with Christ. And the question for you and I as we think about the new heaven and the new earth this morning, is that what heaven is about for us? This morning, I want us to begin looking at, and I have a hunch we'll probably only get through two of them this morning, two things with regard to this new heaven and the new earth. That with the new heaven and the new earth, there is a new home for the true believer. And there's a new people that's being created in the new heaven and the new earth. But make no mistake about this. Please hear me. Let me clarify this as much as possible. This new home and this new people all revolve around one thing, Jesus Christ. Everything in this new heaven and new earth is about Jesus Christ. And I would submit to you, the soul on earth, that Christ is not the great interest of their soul, really has no interest in the new heaven and the new earth. Because it's all about Christ. If worshiping Christ, pray, if Christ is not enough here, why would you want heaven? Because there ain't anything but Christ in heaven. And for the true believer, it is praise be to God. That's what I'm longing for. That's why I spend so much diligent time in the word and in prayer and in fellowship and communion because I want Christ to live as Christ. And death is gain because I get Christ. Let's look at these at least two things together this morning. First of all, with the new heaven and the new earth, it's a new home. Look at verse 1, chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I hope you hear an echo there. We've come a long way since Genesis 1-1, but Genesis 1-1, there's a little bit of an echo. Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, Revelation 21, we read, the first heaven and first earth have passed away. Well, my goodness, think back to Genesis 1. Over the course of seven days, God created the first heaven and the first earth. And if I remember correctly, 
each day, at the end of the day, God himself was looking back on all that he had created, and he said what? It is good. All that he saw was good. So why in Revelation 21, this is the necessary, why in Revelation 21 is that heaven and earth now being passed away? And the answer is Genesis 3. All that God created, God's good creation, was marred by sin and death because of the disobedience of our first parents, Adam and Eve. And it left its mark on all of creation. And if we're paying attention to the clues throughout Scripture, we read things like this in Romans chapter 8. Paul writes, all creation is groaning with the, the pains of birth. All of creation is, is anticipating, it's waiting with eager longing. It's in bondage to corruption. And therefore, it's groaning in the pains of childbirth. Why? God said it was a good good world well, since Genesis 3. Genesis 3 left its mark upon this world of sin and death and chaos and distraction from God. Now what God created for His glory, now creation is being used to turn hearts away from God. And so because of this effect on the creation, we see promises throughout the Bible such as we see in Isaiah chapter 65. God wrote this, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And then he commands his people in the next verse, Be glad and rejoice forevermore in that which I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem to be a joy and her people to be a gladness. So there's a promise there in Isaiah's day that, that God is well aware that the world is not, as he, is not as he left it in Genesis 1 and 2. That sin has had a cataclysmic effect upon the creation and now all of creation and all the inhabitants of creation groans under the weight of sin and death. And in Isaiah 65, for example, he promises it won't always be this way. I will bring about a new heaven and a new earth. So, beloved, what we're looking at in Revelation 21 is the fulfillment of that promise, is the fulfillment of Isaiah 65, what God said he would do. Now he's fulfilling that. Uh, Revelation 21 is that day that God was speaking of in Isaiah chapter 65. And John here is doing his best, bless his heart. John is like one of us. He's human, and he's getting this grand, he's doing his best to put it into words what it's like. And so he says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. What I want you to see here in this new home, first and foremost, is how Revelation 21 fits into the storyline of the Bible. That this is always, it, it, it's tightly wound to Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And the reason we have the coming about of a new heaven and a new earth is not because the original creation wasn't good. It was because of sin. It's because of death. It's because of the effects of those things upon the world. And so God was promising a new heaven and a new earth. But there's more. Not just how this fits into the whole storyline of the Bible. Notice John says it's a new heaven and a new earth. The word new there 
don't want to bore you with details. There's various words for new in Greek. This one is the word kainos. And kainos all throughout Scripture indicates newness and quality, not newness and time. What that means is this is not newness like everything else is done away with, and now he creates almost like Genesis 1 again, ex nihilo, out of nothing. Boom, a new heaven and a new earth. That's not the word. This is a new heaven and a new earth, new in quality, new in essence. In contrast to the first heaven and the first earth that is, that is being uh, uh, done away with, he's ushering in a new heaven and a new earth, new in quality, new in kind, something that is changed in its essence, not something that's never previously existed, Kind of think of it as a renovation. It's a renovation of God's Genesis 1 good earth back to what he always intended it to be. The first heaven, the first earth was impermanent. It was temporary. We understand now in light of biblical revelation, but this new and this renovation he's doing upon it, it's a permanent. It's permanent. It's enduring. The first heaven and first earth, there was darkness. And you needed these big balls of fire up in the sky, like a sun. And then a big, another big ball that reflects the light of the sun, a moon, to bring light into this dark world. But in this new renovated, new heaven and new earth, well, we're going to read in the next couple weeks, no need for those things. They do away with sun, do away with moon. Why? Because God is the light. Christ is the light. I think the newness of quality is hinted at in verses 4 and 5. We've already talked about in Romans 8, all of creation is groaning under the weight of sin and death. Yet we read in verses 4 and 5, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. What's he, he's, he's describing a radically changed world. It's a new heaven and new earth, not one that's coming out of nowhere, never been before, but one that is radically changed, radically altered. But here's the purpose. Stay with me here. Here's where it matters. By renovating this world, having judged out of this world, purged out of this, this is part of the renovation, purging out of this world everything that doesn't love Christ. Purging out of this world everything that keeps Christ at his, everything that distracts us from Christ, everything that tempts us away from, by purging all of it away, what's left behind now? Christ. And this new heaven and new earth is not about, whoo, what a great place that's going to be to live. The new heaven and the new earth now. Finally, we have a place, a world, a context where we can have what we want. Live unto Jesus without distraction. There's nothing else to distract us from him. Nothing to take our focus off of Christ. Nothing to disrupt our worship of Christ. Everything else has been purged out. 
and all that's left is Christ and those that he has purchased by grace through his life, death, and resurrection upon the cross, through the new birth, the work of the Holy Spirit, all that's left is those without distraction unto Christ, full of what he promised in Isaiah 65, joy and gladness, right? The promise of Isaiah 65, a new heaven and a new earth, where verse 17 and 18 there will be joy and gladness. Beloved, there, joy and gladness in anything other than Christ is nothing but idolatry. The joy and gladness he's speaking of in the new heaven and the new earth is Christ. And so what we, this wonderful picture of a new heaven and new earth here is a world without distraction. A world where Christ is all. And every soul that has not been purged away in judgment is devoted to this one. The descriptions of this new heaven and new earth, John doesn't give us a lot of detail. It's curious he gives us only one detail about when he looks up to the new heaven and new earth. There's only one thing he says. What does verse 1 say? I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And he, this is the only detail he gives us. And the sea was no more. And you've got to ask, why, John? Of everything you could possibly say and describe, why do you single out that the sea is no more? We could ask, is, is John afraid of the water? Is John one of those in his day who, who's anti-ocean, anti-beach? Might John be one of those who, when it comes time for vacation, he's going to prefer, I want to go to the mountains. I want to go to Disney World, anywhere but the beach. Maybe John is one of those. We know people like that. Let's be honest. It seems somewhat curious that John is getting this vision of the new heaven and new earth, and fundamentally the thing that he's drawn to is the sea was no more. What in the world is the point here? Well, it's something we've referenced all throughout the book of Revelation, the symbolism of the book. This is apocalyptic literature. Symbolism is a major interpretive key to, this, to these texts. Going back to the Old Testament and understanding what did these symbols mean biblically and bring them into the text. And one of the things we've seen is in John's writing and throughout the Old Testament, the sea symbolizes chaos and disorder. The Jews themselves were not a seafaring people. They saw the, the waters, the oceans, as a place of great dread and evil. It was a malicious thing. Sometimes we're people who see the ocean with awe, right? We go put our feet in the ocean, we look out, and we're just in awe. We look across the horizon, we're like, my goodness, the majesty of God on display. May I submit to you, the Jews were not like that. <laughs> The, the water symbolized not the majesty of God, the, create, the uncreated creator. It symbolized for them terror, disorder, and chaos. And it really makes sense if you think about it. If you think back in the Israelite history and the revelation of God to them, what was it God used to destroy the whole world? Water. The Jews were very much familiar. 
that God used water to destroy the world in the days of Noah. We can read about in Isaiah chapter 27. Isaiah writes about terrible monsters inhabiting the sea. Uh, in Psalm 42, the psalmist writes about judgment comes from the sea. In Daniel 7, we reference this with one of the Revelation passages. Daniel saw four hostile beasts emerging from what? The sea. Revelation 12, Revelation 13. This was the, the place where we most clearly spoke about this. Where did John himself see as the devil was standing on, the great dragon was standing on the sea to call forth the beast and, and, uh, from, from where? From the water, from the sea. And one commentator, I was in working through this passage, I thought this was brilliant for John himself. Where is John as he's writing this? He's banished on the island of Patmos. What is it that separates him from his loved ones? Water on all sides. Now that's a symbolic interpretation there, but the idea here is, is that the water symbolized chaos and disorder. And in that context, the picture of the new heaven and the new earth where John says, and here's the most important thing I can say to you about this, the sea was no more. It's not about there's no oceans up there. I don't think he's talking about the geology of the new heaven and new earth. He's talking symbolically. What's he saying there? All the disorder, all the chaos, all the things that, that cause us to drift away from Christ, that tempt us to, to distract us, it's all gone. In the new heaven and new earth, it is just pure, unadulterated Christ. Nothing to distract. Nothing to, for us to dread. It's just Christ Himself. What a majestic statement. He doesn't tell us a lot. But he tells us enough. All those things in the first heaven and first earth, the, the chaos, the, the evil, the sinister sin, the living creatures that came out of the ocean, those representatives and ambassadors of the great dragon whose great work was to turn hearts away from Christ. They're no more. There's now nothing to turn hearts away from Christ. For those who love Christ and were not purged in the judgment, new heaven and new earth, and it's just you and Christ. Nothing in the new heaven and new earth to threaten your peace with Christ. Nothing to threaten your happiness in Christ. Nothing to threaten Christ's rule and reign over your heart and life. He will be your God. He will be your king, and you will joyfully be his child, his bride, and live unto him without distraction. This is what makes heaven heaven, first and fundamentally. Everything else done away that would distract a soul from Christ. Which leads us to a second thing this morning. A second thing, whereas John only gives one sentence to describe this new creation, he does spend the next several sentences describing the people who will inhabit this new heaven and new earth. And he speaks in terms of a physical city. He speaks in terms of a city with buildings, but his primary focus is not upon the building of a city. His primary focus is on the inhabitants, the citizens of that city. 
the redeemed, the true saints of God. So we've seen verse 1 brings to our attention this new home, free of distraction, free of sin, just pure, unadulterated, Christ is all. Verses 2 through 4 begins to explain this new relationship. A relationship with this one. And the relationship that John uses is that of a wedding. It's a new people who are wed faithfully to Jesus. That's the relationship. Wed faithfully to Jesus. Look at verse 2. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He, do, he will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be their God, will, will, will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Let me try to frame it this way. Heaven is more than just the reverse of the curses, which is what verse 1 is, right? A new home, no, the seas are no more, sin no more, evil no more, the chaos is no more. That's a wonderful picture in and of itself, a glorious picture that should make our hearts sing because it's our sin that, that causes us to drift away from the one we love. But heaven is more than just a reversal of those curses. It's more than just the restoration of creation, which right now is groaning as in the pains of childbirth. The new heaven and the new earth is those things, but it also sets the stage for how the true people of God will live in relationship with this God forever. And, and it does so. It sets the stage by, through the, the building of a, a new city. As, or as John calls it in verse 2, a holy city. And this is the place where the people of God dwell in the presence of their all-satisfying husband, Jesus Christ. He calls it, first of all, this a holy city. With that in mind, skip down to verses 15 through 17 with me. He calls it in verse 2 a holy city. And then the, the city is described in verse 15. And the one who spoke with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city and its gates. The city lies four square, its length the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and width and height are equal. Now let me pause there. And we'll read it again. I want you to visualize what he's describing. Visualize the shape here. All right? The city lies four square. Its length, the same as its width. And he measured the city with his rod, 12,000 stadia. Its length and height and width are equal. What's the shape? Its length and height and width are equal. It's a perfect cube. It's a perfect cube. 
12,000 stadia is about 1,400 miles, but that's not important because he's not talking about, this is symbolic. Why is this significant? Why in this new heaven and new earth is, is it necessary to tell the dimensions and be so clear about it that it's a perfect cube? Because? It's an echo. It's a symbol of something we see in the Old Testament. What do we know of in the Old Testament that is a perfect cube? The most holy place. Second Kings tells, First Kings chapter 6 tells us that right at the very center of the temple that was built in Jerusalem is the most holy place. And you go look at the dimensions of it. It very clearly lays the blueprint for what we see here in Revelation chapter 21. Well, what was that most holy place in 1 Kings chapter 6, that perfect cube? Well, it was the place where God would meet with Israel. That was the one place where God said this is where his manifest presence would dwell. And once a year, only once a year, the high priest could come in only after going through a rigorous process of cleansing, could enter into the presence of Almighty God. And remember, he's got to have a rope tied around him just in case he's not pure enough and he falls down dead in the presence of Almighty God in the blazing inferno of God's holiness. Once a year, this one can go in there and make atonement for sin. And that, that most holy place was uh, overlaid in, in gold. It was a perfect cube. It was a place of absolute sacred holiness and purity. What's the significance here? The new heaven and the new earth, the city itself, is built to the exact specifications as far as the, the, the shape of it. What's the point? This is the most holy place. The new heaven and the new earth. What makes it so significant and so special is what the most holy place was to God and the relationship of God to his people in the Old Testament. So now, in the new heaven and new earth, this is the place where God's manifest glory dwells and though his true people who were not purged in the judgment, those who truly love him by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and they confess he is all to their souls. They dwell in his presence. Forever. We'll see this more clearly in some of the verses to come. But in this new heaven and new earth, what makes this the holy city is this is the place where God himself in unrestrained glory dwells. There's nowhere that's unclean. That's why chapter 19 and 20 had to come before chapter 21. As long as there's even one soul that is in sin, if there's even one soul that has committed even one sin of omission, meaning they, it was an accident, they failed to do what God said, that soul, now no one ever has just one, but that's the point. If that one could not be in this new heaven and the new earth, that one would have been purged away in the judgment. Anyone not covered entirely, completely by the blood of Jesus Christ is wiped away so that now the only remnant that's left are true believers and there is no unclean. You have the presence of God and those covered by the blood and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Everywhere is the holy of holies. Everyone is standing holy unto the Lord. You won't enter into the presence of Almighty God through a priest. 
You'll do so through a lamb. Jesus Christ himself. It's a new city. It's a holy city. Not only that, notice something else that we're told about the city. Verse 2, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. What John is telling us here is something God, please give us ears to hear. It's an echo of what we've been saying in chapter 20. Heaven is never the product of your human effort to try to get there. Nobody ever gets to heaven based upon your efforts to try to earn your way there through religion, through morality, through being a good Christian. How did these get into the new heaven and new earth? Verse 2. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. It's not us working our way up. It's him by grace bringing it down. I want us to see not only the holiness of the city, I want us to see the grace of the city. The grace of the city. What we have here is, you remember the Tower of Babel? What about our kids here? Do you remember our story about the Tower of Babel? What were the people trying to do there? Noah's family. They were trying to build a building up to God, right? And God said, nice try. It doesn't work that way. And he created all kinds of, of havoc. They tried to build a monument of self-reliance and self-righteousness and their own efforts up to God. But that was so foolish. That can't be done. There's no way to get to heaven in our own efforts. You can't get there by your own willpower, by your, pulling up your own bootstraps. If you gain entrance into the new heaven and new earth, beloved, it's a gift given to you. From the Father. It comes down from heaven to you, and if you are by grace given the highest of privileges to gain citizenship into this holy city, it will only be by grace. Your passport into the city comes from Christ Himself. Go back to what we saw in chapter 20 when God brings sinners before Himself in, the, in judgment. There's two books that are open. One, the record of every life, every deed, every thought, every word spoken that we thought was done privately with just our good friend that nobody else knew about. Or that thought, God forbid, I never actually voiced. It was just me. All of it's done before the gaze, quorum Deo, before the gaze of Almighty God. Every one of them's recorded. And not just the deed, the motivation, the action of them. And everyone standing before this book looking face to face in the blazing inferno of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, line by line. Every one of those sins, every one of them, to be judged eternally. Unless, unless your name's in the other book a book that was written before the foundation of the world, a book that's not being added to daily, a, a book that reflects God's omniscient purposes, God's wisdom for His glory, God's grace. That those who gain entrance into this kingdom, it is solely by grace. Because in the first book, there isn't anybody who meets the criteria to gain entrance into this holy city. 
The only ones who gain entrance, who receive the key in, they robed in the righteousness of Christ. They're cloaked in His obedience. He has atoned for their sins. And every sin in that first book, paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. Nobody qualifies for the new heaven and new earth. I promise none of us want to go that path. Nobody wants to bring our book before God and say, can I get in? Rather, it's the Lamb of God who qualifies us. Only the Lamb is holy enough and pure enough and righteous enough to make a way for all of our record of wrongs to be forgiven as our propitiating sacrifice and for us to be clothed in His righteousness. For those who by grace are in the book of life, only by grace. There's this promise of the new heaven and new earth comes down by God and brings them in. The holiness of the city, the grace of the city, very quickly the God of the city. John writes, this holy city is prepared, verse 2, as a bride adorned for her husband. Interesting imagery. Obviously, he's speaking of marriage here. A bride adorned for her husband. What's he talking about? This new heaven and new earth, this, this new people that's being created, this new relationship that will, that will mark uh, this relationship with God in the new heaven and new earth, this new home where there's no more seas, no more chaos. It's one of a, a marriage. And this is the final consummation, if you will, of God's glorious work of salvation for an undeserving people whom He has loved with an everlasting love in spite of us. That's what we read about. We love Him, not because we're so holy and righteous, we love Him only because He first loved us with an everlasting love that could never be explained. He loved us, that first book. Why? Everything that I've done against you. Every sin, every thought. Why? It's the glory of this husband. The glory of this kinsman redeemer. You're familiar with the story of Hosea, aren't you? Hosea was a prophet called by God to marry Gomer. A woman that God knew full well was going to cheat on Hosea, was going to become a prostitute, was going to cheat on her husband over and over and over again. Yet God tells Hosea, I want you to marry, I want you to stay married to her. Why? It's God up there, man, look at what I've done to Hosea. Man, this poor guy down here. He's picturing for us those who by grace by grace, have been included in the Lamb's book of life from before the foundation of the world. God has promised to love us the way He commanded Hosea to love His prostitute bride who cheated on Him over and over and over again with an everlasting love. In spite of us, in spite of what? It's all of grace. All of grace. A love that's so eternal 
that's so pure, so jealous that what have we seen in the book of Revelation? For those who go to war against his beloved bride, what is Christ on his throne doing? He's pouring out trumpet judgments. He's pouring out seal judgments. Bold judgments. You touch my bride, even while they're out flirting with you, you're a dead people. That's his pure love for his wayward people. A love so strong, so undeniable. You foolish, foolish bride. You continue, in me you have everything, and yet you continue to go and drink the fountains of this world. And the wages of that sin is death. There's no reason I should stay wed to you as your God and you as my people. But my love for you is eternal. My love for you is not, man, I'm looking down on you and you're just somebody I just feel bad for. I'm going to love you and give you entry. into. It's eternal. It's founded upon the foundation of, of who God is and His eternality and His immutability. It's founded in Himself. God, if He were to let you go, would betray Himself. Not you. He would betray Himself. And so at the great cost to himself that he may be faithful to himself to glorify himself in the salvation of a prostitute, you and me, I will send my beloved son to die for you in your unfaithfulness so that one day those sins will be forgiven and one day you and I can have this marriage that I intended from before the foundation of the world and you, I will be your God, I will be your husband, you will be my bride, you will be my people and you will love me and with no more seas, there's no more distraction, no more, it's just me. You love me, all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. That's why he says in verse three, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. This redeemer, this husband, his love for his bride, he will dwell with them in the new heaven and new earth and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And as a consequence of his love for his bride, his church, he will, verse 4, Wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. No crying, nor pain, nor, and the former things will pass away. The great danger is we look at that passage and we look at that and we say, man, that's what I want. New heaven, new earth, no more tears, no more suffering, no more sorrow. And we read it independent of the relationship that's there. He says, as a result of the marriage that I've provided to you and the consummation of that marriage through Jesus Christ, these gifts I give to you because of Jesus. I'm not just wiping away tears because I hate to see my bride cry. I'm wiping away your tears. You cry because you are a prostitute who went away from me. You sinned against me. You, you flirted with the world. And your tears are the effect of that. And now those tears are wiped away, not because I just love you. I know you're really sorry for what you did. It's because Christ died on the cross to wipe away those tears. All the anguish that you endured in this life because of decisions you made to drift away from me. Now there's no more anguish, no more pain, no more suffering. Not because, ah, we're just going to let bygones be. It's because Christ died 
to do away with those things. And in this new heaven and new earth, you're receiving the consummation of the work of Jesus Christ. All that Christ won for you is now yours. It's the fulfillment of the work of Christ. And because in the new heaven and new earth, you are the, with the bridegroom, because you're with Christ, Christ who died and rose again, death must flee. Death doesn't flee because God's like, my poor spouse here, let me fix this for you. It's all in relation to Christ. Because of Christ, death flees. Because of Christ, tears are dispelled. Because of Christ, there's no despair now, but only joy. All of these blessings, are verse 4, have everything to do with our proximity to Christ. So, if Christ is not all, there is no hope of these blessings. Do you see? The great blessing of heaven is Christ. And we're just getting started into this new heaven and new earth. The biggest takeaway this morning is this. Why do you look forward to heaven? I'm guessing you do, and that is assuming you're at a place where you believe you've, you can lay hold of that claim because of some profession you've made in Jesus Christ. Well, then here becomes the real test of that profession. What is it that makes heaven heaven to you? Is it escapism from all the tears and struggles and hardships of this world? Those belong to those who are clinging to Christ. Is the great desire of heaven Christ? Or is it something else? This morning, the story of Hosea and Gomer can be a great encouragement to you. If you look at your soul this morning, and maybe for the first time you're asking that hard question, what is it that makes heaven to? What am I really looking forward to? And if your soul, if the Spirit of God is so kind enough to expose, if it is Christ, praise be to God. It's by His grace and cling to Jesus Christ as you head that way. But if the Spirit of God is kind enough to expose and show that it's not about Christ, it's just not. I mean, I'll sing the songs and I'll, I'll join in in prayer and I'll mouth. But Jesus himself said, I, I see a people whose mouths mouth the right thing, but their hearts are far from me. If, if the spirit is kind enough to show that the heart is not where it needs to be, then let the story of Hosea be a great encouragement to you. God's love for his people is an everlasting love. You say, well, Jake, I don't know if my name's written in the book of life. Run to Jesus. Run to Jesus, cry out for the work of the Spirit upon your soul to do what only the Spirit can do, to turn your heart to Jesus. And I promise you, I promise you, God is not withholding. Let me check the book first and see, what's your name again? No, I'm not going to usher it out to you. No, your name wasn't here. That's not what the point is. For those who profess faith in Jesus Christ in this way, it is evidence their name is in the book. If you're here this morning and your heart is pursuing these things, it's a good indication the Spirit is at work. Praise God for it. Just don't stop short. God is a God who is faithful to his faithless bride. So run to Christ now. Now's the day of salvation. Right now counts for forever. Cry out to him. Something in my soul is not right. I'm religious, I'm moral. But this whole, new heaven, this whole new heaven, new earth being wrapped around Christ and entranced by him, my soul's not there. Spirit, help me. Wash me. Cleanse me. 
through the finished work of Jesus Christ, forgive me and open my eyes to behold the beauty of Christ that I would long for him more than anything else. We're kind of stopping in the middle of things here. But this morning, we've got enough to hang our hat on, some hang, handles to hang on to. What are you hoping in this morning? Is it Christ? Is it Christ? Anything else is insufficient.